I'm Susan Moran. And I'm Jim Pullen. This is KGNU's How on Earth, the show that makes you smarter. Today is Tuesday, February 4th, 2014. Coming up, a dispatch from the Arctic Frontiers Conference and what a thawing Arctic means for all of us. And we'll learn about the struggle to understand exactly why atmospheric methane concentration is rising after a decade-long hiatus. And a rare occasion, we'll hear about a conservation success story. Think Bonobos. to skip our headlines today as we have three feature interviews. First, Susan, uh, welcome back to uh, How on Earth from the far, way far north. <laughs> Thanks, Jim. Yeah, Nor- Norway's Arctic Circle. Uh, we talked to you about two weeks ago about this trip as you were heading to Norway to attend a conference that's focusing on the scientific and geopolitical issues related to the thawing Arctic. Uh, what were some of the highlights? Well, first, for those who think uh, it's best to escape to Costa Rica or something in January, it really is a fascinating place to be in in January there. Just a slice of light where I was is uh, near total darkness, actually, in January, 71 degrees north latitude in the city called Tromso, um, way north of Oslo. And it was such a novelty. And in fact, separate from the conference, but one night I saw the Aurora Borealis or the Northern Lights for the first time. And it was surreal, just spectacular. So the conference itself was called the Arctic Frontiers. And it's, um, I think, the eighth year it's been held. And this year's themes were health, society and environment, particularly related to shipping to maritime industries as the as the ocean, the ice packed ocean opens up. And the backdrop of the conference is this understanding that global warming is rapidly melting Arctic ice, in fact, at twice the pace of the rest of the world, and that the big thaw is bringing huge economic opportunities for some, namely oil and gas and mineral companies, as well as the shipping, fisheries, and, of course, tourism industries. But many of the scientists and environmentalists, medical doctors, and local residents worry that potentially harmful effects could happen with, from the old and new pollutants, these contaminants, and what, what the effect they'll have on fish, and particularly fatty sea animals, and of course on the indigenous people who eat them. And another big concern is the human safety and environmental risks from industries that are flocking to the region, especially the impacts of oil spills or cruise ship accidents in super remote areas. I mean, we're talking distance, like from Tromso to Africa, just to do search and rescue. And um, among the scientists studying how contaminants reach Arctic waters and what impact they're having is Lars Otto Rearson. He's the executive secretary of what's called the Arctic Monitoring and Assessment Program, or AMAP. And it falls under the Arctic Council, which is an intergovernmental forum of eight member countries, including the U.S. and Canada, that addresses issues related to the Arctic. So I pulled him aside and asked him how people like us, living thousands of miles away from the Arctic, play a role in the quality of life of Arctic people and the food web they rely on. If there is a use of chemicals in your vicinity, um, agriculture, industry, you name it, that um, you can have a... What we see here is that it is the food, is the main exposure route to humans. So if the contaminants go into the food you are eating, then you get a higher exposure than to breathing and other ways of... And it's not just the indigenous and others living in the Arctic who it, are eating those. In other words, it's all cycling through? It's cycling, it's, but it's the consumption. If you eat um, once a month a product, you have a low intake. But if you eat it four times a day, suddenly you have a high intake. And that's the 
part of the paradox for the Arctic people. They are living in a clean environment, hardly any emissions. The products are released in North America, Europe, Asia, transported to the north, accumulated in food chain. And then they are eating what has been the food that has made them to survive in thousands of years, the blubber, the fat. So the traditionally healthy diet is looking pretty contaminated, and you'd ask, uh, are they suffering serious health problems? Well, studies are showing pretty high levels of methylmercury and PCBs in some Arctic indigenous people from the blubber-rich foods they eat. So PCBs were used as fire retardants, hydraulic fluids, plasticizers, pesticide extenders, and other things. They were banned in the U.S. in the 1970s. He mentioned the Arctic paradox. Well, another one is that... A health problem that's cropping up, especially among younger Sami and other indigenous people, is diabetes and obesity. Researchers think it's largely from eating more processed, namely McDonald's and such, modern foods. What else was interesting on the science front at the conference? Well, there was a lot. So another big topic was human safety, as more and more people will be living and working outdoors for long periods of time in these sub-freezing temperatures, like today here in Boulder, um, of the Arctic. And one fascinating researcher I met is a British physiologist named Michael Tipton from the University of Portsmouth in the UK. He studies the human physiological responses to extreme cold air and water. And what surprised me was how dangerous and long-lasting some of the less obvious injuries you can get from cold exposure. And since we're equally susceptible to these injuries here in the Colorado winter, I snagged Dr. Tipton to tell me about the so-called non-freezing cold injuries and how we can avoid them. Here's what he said. Frostbite is very obvious. You know, you lose parts of the body and it can progress to you know, more dangerous things like gangrene. So that's very obvious. You can see the problems, we understand the problems. Non-freezing cold injury is much more subtle. However, the long-term consequences of it can be as equally debilitating. Uh, cold sensitivity, hyperhidrosis, i.e. sweating in the exposed um, or the injured areas, makes you increase increasingly likely to get a, a subsequent cold injury and intractable pain so that's pain that you can't treat with standard analgesics now you know this is a lifelong problem we, we've been um, having people come and see us who have contracted their non-freezing cold injury 30 40 years ago um, but you don't you know you don't know that you're getting this injury it's much more subtle it can be something like reasonably cool air for a long period perhaps with some immersion um, it can be shorter immersion I mean there, there are other versions of it like paddy foot trench foot where they're all exactly the same condition we don't know but the problems it produces are lifelong prevent you going back into the cold limit your employability and and, you know, when severe, lead to things like claims for compensation. So I asked him in that rather noisy hallway how those living or recreating in freezing conditions can prevent themselves, those who are more susceptible to such cold in injuries, how they can prevent them. Some things are obvious, but others not so obvious to me anyway. It's a kind of strange piece of advice, but stay hydrated. People always think about dehydration being a problem in the warm, but it's uh, as big a problem in the cold because, one, you're becoming dehydrated by the physiological response of shutting down blood flow to the... I mean, we all know this. If you go stand, stand in a cold environment very long, you'll need to go 
and urinate. And that urine has been produced by the vasoconstriction, upping the central blood volume, stimulating pressure receptors, and then the kidneys start to produce urine. And the other way you're losing fluid in a cold environment is because every time you breathe in air, this air out here, because it's icy cold, is bone dry, you breathe it in, you humidify it in the lung, and you breathe out 100% humidified air. And every time you do that, you're losing fluid from the body. So those two mechanisms mean that people can spend quite a lot of time um, dehydrated. So maintaining hydration is another thing. Um, if you're going to be in the cold, for young, otherwise fit, healthy individuals, cold air... And provided you're exercising and you're reasonably well protected, it's not an enormous problem. Um, you know, I don't want to overplay that problem. The problem comes, as I said when I spoke, is when you either become exhausted because you get lost in a, on a hill walk or you get lost in a whiteout skiing or something like that, or you become injured. Because when that happens, you lose the ability to generate metabolic heat. Well, let's drink to that advice. So that's my mini-dispatch from the Arctic Frontiers Conference from Norway. I'll be writing more about it in Popular Science magazine soon. Thank you, Susan. You're welcome. You're tuned to How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. I'm Jim Pullen. Work is progressing to understand the sources, sinks, and reservoirs of important greenhouse gases, but much about methane remains a mystery. Methane is more than 30 times more effective a greenhouse gas than CO2, so getting a grip on methane is extremely important for predicting the global climate change and its impacts. Our guest today is Dr. Ed Dugokinski. Ed is an atmospheric chemist with NOAA's Earth Systems Research Laboratory in Boulder. He recently co-authored a paper with European colleagues in the journal Science on the methane mystery. In 2013, he won a NOAA's Outstanding Scientific Paper Award for a 2009 article on observed increases in atmospheric methane. Welcome to How on Earth, Ed. Good morning, Jim. Thanks for having me. Ed, the title of your recent paper is called Methane on the Rise. What's going on with methane in the environment? How's that been changing over time? Well, our measurements at NOAA started in 1983, and from 1983 through about 2006, we saw that methane was increasing, but the rate of increase was decreasing. And in fact, uh, the amount of methane in the atmosphere was nearly stable from 1999 through 2006. And then since 2007, it started increasing again. And what we're trying to do is understand the causes uh, of this re recent increase. Let's put this in the context that you normally think about it. Sources, sinks, and the reservoir. Help us understand what the sources of methane are, the sinks, and the reservoir. Okay. Well, the main reservoir we're concerned with here is the atmosphere. Uh, and then in terms of sources, we have natural sources like wetlands and geological sources, also small amounts from uh, oceans, freshwater lakes, and uh, wild ruminant animals. The anthropogenic sources were the ones affected by humans, uh, come from agriculture, like rice agriculture works in a similar way as, within nat uh, as with natural wetlands, ruminant animals, animal waste, human waste, landfills, biomass burning, which is for clearing land for agriculture, and finally fossil fuel exploitation. And the sinks. 
The main sink is reaction with a, with a species called hydroxyl radical uh, in the troposphere, but there are also small losses from soils, uh, oxidation in soils, and then also oxidation by marine chlorine, and then some reactions in the stratosphere. And so there was a kind of a decade-long uh, constancy in the concentration of methane through the atmosphere, and then in 2007, it started going up again, not quite at the same rate it had been going up before. How do you know that? We know that from our observations. Uh, here at NOAA, we have about uh, 55 sites distributed globally. These are background sites where we sample air that's representative of large, well-mixed volumes of the atmosphere. And then all those samples are brought back here to our laboratory where they're analyzed on the same analytical system, which gives them a certain degree of internal consistency. The precision with which we can measure methane is about one part per billion out of about 1,800 uh, in the atmosphere right now. So we can document the changes in the amount of methane in the atmosphere very, very well. So you can make direct measurements of methane, and then there are also models. But those two things aren't in agreement, the sort of bottom-up and the sort of top-down way to estimate the amount of methane in the atmosphere. That's correct. The top-down technique uh, can be done without using a model at all. We can use just the observations to calculate how much methane is emitted to the atmosphere just based on the observations and an estimate of the methane lifetime, which is about nine years. The bottom-up approach uh, is a little bit different. That's where you start with the individual processes and then try to figure out for each process uh, how much emissions you have from that process. So, for example, if you're interested in emissions from ruminant animals, such as cattle, you would try to get an emission factor for a cow, how many grams of methane it emits per day, and then count the number of cattle in the world, and then multiply the two together, and then you can get total emissions uh, per day or per year over whatever time scale you're interested in. That's a very uncertain technique because, you know, depending on the, the age of the cow and the diet they're fed, the emission factors can be very different, and also getting accurate numbers on the number of cattle in the world is difficult as well. So the top-down approach that we do directly from measurements is the one that gives us the least uh, uncertainty in estimating uh, total global methane emissions. And so it's pretty un important to understand methane, but we still are having a difficult time grasping. Is uh, oil and gas development, is that, is that what's causing the uh, rise in methane since 2007? No, I, I think that the, the major contributor to that is emissions from tropical wetlands. After nearly a decade of fairly dry conditions in the tropics, starting in 2007, a series of La Nina events has led to enhanced precipitation in wetland regions in the tropics, and that's probably the main driver of the increase we've seen since 2007. And we have other types of uh, observations, measurements of the uh, isotopic composition of atmospheric methane that are consistent with that. Now, that doesn't mean anthropogenic sources like oil and gas or coal uh, uh, production aren't contributing. They probably are, but probably most of the increase is due to tropical wetland emissions. That's very interesting indeed. What does the scientific community need to do to uh, nail down this top-down versus bottoms-up inconsistency? Well, this top-down approach can also be used with atmospheric transport models with observations. And I think increasing the number of observations, particularly in uh, regions that, uh, where we have limited data right now, for example, the tropics and the Arctic, are probably the best ways to, to get a better handle on what's happening with the global methane budget. Well, thank you very much, uh, Dr. Ed Dugokinski with NOAA. We really appreciate your time and for joining us here on How on Earth. Oh, you're welcome, Jim. 
I'm Susan Moran. Well, if the Arctic seems far away, so may the Democratic Republic of the Congo. And when you think of the Congo, it'd be no surprise if you first thought of horrific human suffering. But in his new book, author Denis Béchard takes us to a success story, actually, of sorts in the Congo. It focuses on the bonobos. Those are matriarchal great apes that are, next to the chimpanzee, our closest relatives in the animal kingdom. Mr. Béchard's book is called Empty Hands, Open Arms, The Race to Save Bonobos in the Congo and Make Conservation Go Viral. He'll speak about his book tomorrow night at the Boulder Bookstore at 7.30. And he's on the phone now from the mountains somewhere in Colorado, en route to Boulder. Denny, welcome to How on Earth. Hi, how are you? I'm great, thanks. So first, what drew you to uh, these bonobos? I I got there in a roundabout way. I was interested in writing about environmental issues and conservation, and what inspired me to do that was uh, I had been reading a number of books on environmental issues and found that they were all pretty much doomsday reports. They were pretty much telling us that there was no hope. Yep. And I thought there must be the stories of people doing work out there. On the off chance that we're going to survive as a race, there must be people doing work that is going to offer us some tools. And I began looking for, for people doing this, and I found a group called the Bonobo Conservation Initiative, who, for a very small percent of uh, the budget of all the big NGOs in the Congo, had made three times as much protected area as all the big NGOs. And so I began looking into, into, into them. And, that's, and I had been aware of bonobos. That's how I really began to look at them closely. When you begin studying bonobos and you realize here's a creature that shares 98.6 or 0.7, depending on how you measure it, percent of our DNA, as much as the chimpanzee does. But unlike humans and chimpanzees, bonobos have never been witnessed killing uh, each other. They've never been witnessed committing committing infanticide. They resolve all conflicts through sex. In um, fact, you you describe them in your book as kind of a sex addicts of sorts. Well, that, that, that tends to be how they are described. They, 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 sex for them it, it has many different meanings. Um, and you know, I don't think humans fully, fully have come to the point of fully understanding what it means for them. They, on, on the surface, they resolve conflict through sex. So, for example, you might have two chimpanzee groups meet in the wild and they'll wage war against each other and, and kill um, and many from, from the um, opposite groups, whereas bonobos meet in the wild and they have an orgy. Um, and or if there is a conflict around mating for bonobos, you know they resolve it. Uh, you know to, they basically resolve it through all sorts of different genital rubbing and um, sexual contact. Or if it's a, you can be conflict around resources, can be conflict around anything. But, but yes, yeah, they do have an incredibly sexual nature. Imagine what a different world this could be for humans. So first, before we get to the before we get to the NGO, I wanted to ask you um, how threatened have they been, and are they? Is their main habitat in the Congo? Well, they, they only live in the Congo. They live south of the Congo River. So there are no bonobos in any other country. And that's one of the reasons why we didn't know about them for so long. And they're large and from bushmeat, you know, bushmeat hunting. So in a sense, the wars in the Congo that essentially displaced millions of people and cut people off from commerce that, that, that destroyed the infrastructure, forced people to go live in the forests and survive off bushmeat. And that, that absolutely devastated the wildlife in the Congo, and the bonobos suffered greatly as a result. It's hard to know how many are left because the Congo is a very large country. Well, what's the estimate, roughly? Are we talking you know, double Somewhere digit? between 5,000 and 25,000. Huh. And so what about this bonobo conservation initiative makes it a success story? 
Well, that is, that's why I wanted to follow them, them out there. And what I realized was that they they have an approach to conservation that is very much building from the local cultures. They they, they study local cultures. Their, their, their number one rule is poverty does not equal ignorance. And this is something that we might tell ourselves that Westerners rarely recognize this. And BCI, the Bonobo Conservation Initiative, would go in and they would learn from the cultures. They would want to find out where the animals were, how the people thought about them, um, what the local politics were. They, they studied the culture and they were students of the cultures. And they, when you say, are they local or is this an um, international well, NGO that sort of learned the local ways? It, 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 it's a, um, an international NGO. It's a, two Americans, well, more than two Americans, a group of a small group of Americans led by an American woman and a, a small group of Congolese. So it was both Congolese and Americans who were doing this together. And they had a partnership model. So there was always negotiation, discussion, how, you know, here we're approaching a new area, who's from that area, what, what can we learn, what can you teach us? And they, they, their approach, what surprised me in their approach was how obvious the, the rules they had were and how simple and sensitive they were, and yet how rarely people doing work in developing countries actually respect these kinds of rules. So we just got about 30 seconds. Just give me a really concrete example of how, say, someone in that community is now benefiting, not just the bonobos. So, for example, um, the um, BCI trained everybody in the area. They give them education. So the people are managing their own resources. They're taking care. They're out there tracking the bonobos. They're the ones in charge of the reserve. They're basically, their entire economy is built around the protection of the, of the bonobos. So, the, you know, the basic theory is you can't save, the basic approach is you can't save the species if people are starving. So they build a culture of conservation where the people, where the people are benefiting, where they're, they're getting prestige, where they're getting education so they can take care of, of the bonobos. Well, thank you so much. We're running out of time, but that was just a tease. You can see um, Denis Béchard tomorrow night at the Boulder Bookstore talking about his new book, Empty Hands, Open Arms, The Race to Save Bonobos in the Congo and Make Conservation Go Viral. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you very much. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. I'm the executive producer this quarter, and Susan produced today's shows. Thank you, Susan. You're welcome. The theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler and additional music from Bernie Krauss and the Talking Heads. Can't listen to How on Earth at our regular time? No worries. Just go to howonearthradio.org and subscribe to our podcast using the iTunes button. Questions or comments? Call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Jim Pullen. And I'm Susan Moran.